So, as I said, we are kicking off a brand new series this morning. Uh, the title of the series is Extra Evangelical. And if you find yourself this morning going, wow, I've never heard that word. I wonder what that means. You're not alone. We made it up. And so I will define it for us later and tell you how we arrived at that. Uh, but let me tell you what the series is. It is a study of the epistle uh, that we refer to as 1 John. Now, 1 John was written by the Apostle John, who also wrote the Gospel of John. And then he wrote 1 John as a reflection uh, and a charge uh, about 40, 50 years or so after uh, Christ had ascended up into heaven. And so he's looking out and he's offering his insight uh, into the state of the church. And what uh, John does is he addresses uh, many different ideas as it relates to truth and the life of the Christian, uh, particularly the rise of Antichrist and heretics inside uh, both the church and outside of it, and warnings against that. And so it's as relevant today as when it was originally written uh, a long time ago now uh, as a, a insight and advice for the church. And so we're going to study 1 John. Uh, sometimes our sermon series, what they do is it kind of like one, two, three, four, like all the way through. Uh, this one is really going to kind of be, there will be a common theme, extra evangelical is kind of the common theme, but really I'm just going to kind of preach 12 sermons uh, from 1 John over the summer. And uh, this morning what I want to do is I want to set up the idea of the importance in why we're doing this. And we'll do that by reading the opening intro to 1 John. And so I'll read that, and then I'm going to give you some points, uh, and, and that'll be our summary startup for the morning. Let me read 1 John. If you got a Bible, you can flip over to 1 John. I think everything's coming out of 1 John this morning. Let me read the opening uh, four verses of 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. I'll just read them through. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete." In fact, multiple times throughout the scripture, or throughout this letter, John is going to say, hey, this is why I'm writing. He's also going to say this, so that you may know. Uh, we live in a world right now, and apparently John did 1950 or so years ago, uh, that was confused on what we could know for certain. And part of why John writes his letter is he's saying there are certain things that we can know for absolute certain. We don't have to guess. We don't have to be ambiguous. We can know these things to be. And so what I want to do is I want to walk through what some of those things are. And I'll show you verses throughout his letter that affirms these things. Uh, and then I'm also going to set that up because it helps us understand the title of our sermon. So let's just start here uh, right at the beginning. Makes sense. It says, that which was from the beginning. Now, this phrase, that which was from the beginning or in the beginning or from the beginning, uh, is a phrase in the scriptures. Of course, that's how the Bible starts in the beginning. Uh, but then John actually starts his gospel, uh, again, written 40 or 50 years or so prior to this letter uh, with a similar phrase. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. John has this tendency, uh, which I think is a very good trait of saying, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let's go back to the beginning. This is something I've applied in my own life, uh, not just this week, but actually over the last, this is why it stuck out to me, really kind of over the last year, uh, in conversations or negotiations or discussions with people to go, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let's go back to the beginning. How did we start this journey, whatever it might be? And, and what were our values at the beginning? Because it's very easy, is it not, that as you start journeying, you start making these slight diversions or variations, and then all of a sudden, instead of comparing what you think or what you're doing or the relationship or the expectations, whatever, instead of comparing it to what you started out with, you begin to compare it to the variations along the way. And John warns us, he says, no, 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 instead, let's go back 
to the beginning. See, even just 50 years into the church, heresy uh, had already begun to surface. And two primary heresies of the time, one was uh, that, 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 well, there's one group and they could get around Jesus's humanity, but they couldn't get around Jesus's divinity. Then there was another group, they could get around Jesus's divinity, but they couldn't get around Jesus's humanity. As Christians, we believe in the dual nature of God, of Christ, right? Both a fully God and fully man. And so John was correcting these things and he was correcting them by saying, let's go back to the beginning. Now, you can imagine uh, that the stage is a timeline this morning. John is writing this, again, about uh, 40 or 50 years or so after the ascension of Christ. And he is saying, let's go back to the beginning. And here's what he meant. Let's go back to the beginning of when Jesus uh, was manifested, when he was on the earth, and then when he ascended into heaven. What were those things that we have certain and true uh, 40, 50 years ago? Now, for us, 40, 50 years, of course, that's kind of a long time, half of life, middle age, all of that kind of stuff, right? And so that's like, okay, go back to the beginning. But in John's gospel, what does he do? He says, go back to the beginning. And when John in his gospel says, go back to the beginning, he's not saying, let's go back 10 years or 15 years. He's saying, no, no, no. Let's go all the way back to the beginning. And in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And so what we see John doing here is he is drawing a straight line from when the church believed right here back to when Christ was on earth. And then through his gospel, he's saying back through the Old Testament, back through the judges, back through the prophets, back through the kings, all the way back to Genesis 1 in the beginning. And what he's saying is there's a straight line of our faith from Genesis 1 all the way through the Old Testament period to the time of Christ to the early church. And my argument this morning is that that straight line continues. And that that straight line is still alive and present today. That the straight line of our faith, that which is foundational, that which is true, that which has always been understood, is a straight line right from the beginning. In part, that's why we did a series. We skipped over uh, this step that we're talking about this morning um, a couple of years ago when we did a series called Satan H. Genesis 1. And what we were saying, there's a straight line from what God created in the beginning all the way through. He's telling one story, one story. Now, why is this so important? Well, we live in a culture right now where the little diversions along the way, people have begun to take diversions off of the diversions and have arrived off of the line, but they go, well, we're really not that far than where we were. You might not be that far from where you were, but where you were was already far from where you were supposed to be. This is how we arrive at places where we no longer hold and uphold biblical truth. Now, here's what John says. He said, let's start from the beginning, right? Uh, and then he's going to give some proofs on why going back to the beginning or of when Christ was on earth, why we can trust it. And it's not bad, right? We don't have a blind faith in the sense that uh, there is a reason, there's practical reason, there's intellectual reason, right, on why we believe what we believe. And John's going to give some proofs. He's going to say, that which was from the beginning, in other words, we've believed the same things. Those of us who are uh, correct and accurate, we have believed the same things from the beginning. And John's going to give some proofs. He's going to say this. First, he's going to say, which we have heard. This is his first proof. He's going to say, no, no, no. I heard Jesus say these things. We're not making this up. These are not myths. They, it's not legend. Uh, it's not been manipulated uh, through translation. We heard Jesus say these things. John's saying, I heard them. I heard them with my own ears. The rest of the disciples heard them with their own ears. That which has been recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those of us who are around Jesus when he was preaching, when he was teaching, we have written down exactly what he said. Now, this is important because we live in a day right now uh, where people will say things like, well, how do we know what Jesus would think about this? Who are you to say uh, what Jesus would think about fill in the blank? I am nobody, but this is everything. We do have something. We don't need to speculate. We can just look and say, what did he actually say? What were his words? What were his words? And so John is saying, no, 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 I heard him say these things. 
I mean, think about John's gospel, some of the most famous things of Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. His a statement here at the end of this gospel, it is finished. I mean, all along the way, I am the, the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, another statement, John's saying, I heard him say that. And also what's going on here uh, is John is laying out a defense of saying, you, uh, modern person, you don't get to define who Jesus is. The scriptures did that for us. Oh, this is important because people will try to say things like, oh, well, my Jesus wouldn't do that. I don't care about what your Jesus would or would not do if your Jesus is not in alignment with this book. This is why it's important. And so he says, no, 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 we heard him say these things. That's his first proof. And then he's going to give a second proof. He's going to say, which we have also seen with our eyes. He's saying, I didn't just hear him. I saw him. I, I, I saw him heal the leper. I saw him heal the blind man. I saw him walk on water. I, I saw him calm the storm. I, I saw the way he loved people. I saw him with my own eyes. I saw him before his death. I saw him post his resurrection. No one has made this stuff up. We all saw it. In fact, barring a line from Paul, he's going to say, and there were at one point 500 people who saw saw it and who saw him alive. We've heard him and we saw him. We know that this is true. Go back to the beginning. John is saying, erase all of the diversions all along the way. Get back on the straight line, back to when Jesus was on earth. What did we see and what did we hear? Then he's going to go and he's going to give a third proof. He's going to say, not just did we see it, but we also looked upon it. You say, well, what's the difference between seeing and looking upon it? Um, uh, some of us from the, the staff team, we went to lunch this week, and we were at Panera, and Panera was redoing their parking lot. And I walked into Panera, uh, and then I was walking back out, and I go, wow, they did a lot of work. Look at all the parking lot they ripped up, ripped up while we were gone. And James goes, dude, that was here when we walked in. I was like, wow. Like, I totally missed it. Now, I literally walked right over it, right? So I saw it, uh, uh, but I didn't look. It didn't register. I didn't acknowledge it. And the difference here between the seeing and the looking is this. He's saying, we looked into Christ. We, uh, like, a, like, a, like a groom who sees his bride coming down, there's, there's, there's something uh, beautiful about it. There's something you behold. There's something you gaze at. And he's saying, no, no, we looked at Jesus. It's like John saying, I saw the grace in his eyes. I saw the love that he had. I saw the fierceness uh, that he had when he flipped over the tables or when he was protecting children. I saw it in him. We looked and we gazed. And not only uh, b- before his resurrection, but I saw him on the cross. I, I looked upon what was happening. I was watching him when he yelled out, Eli, Eli, the Meisterbach tonight. I looked upon him when he ascended into heaven. I looked upon him uh, post his resurrection. We have gazed into him. John is saying, I know who this man is. And these distortions and this heresy and these things that have crept up in the last 50 years, that's not my Jesus. Go back to the beginning. That's what he's saying. He's saying, trust, trust what we have written and recorded. This is the Christ. This is the Christ. Then he's going to go on. He's going to give one more proof. He's going to say, not only that, we touched him with our hands. Why is he saying that one, by the way? Uh, As I mentioned earlier, because one of the heresies uh, was that Jesus was not fully man. And so uh, they would say, well, he's almost like an angelic uh, being or he's he's a force uh, right? He was an idea. And John is saying, no, 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 no. He was a man. I touched him with my hands. As much as you can touch the person next to you, uh, I touched him with my hands. He was real. I saw uh, the holes in his, in his hands or his wrist. I, I saw his resurrected body. I saw his pre-resurrection body. I saw his dead body. He is real. He is real. And because he is real, and because we know what he said, and because we know what we heard, uh, then we know that we have to hold the line of that which who this Christ really is. And so, this is what John lays out at the beginning. 
Later on now, I'm going to show you a bunch of things. He's going to say that which they learned from the beginning. That he's going, to, he's going to help carry the line of faith from Genesis 1 to where we are today. And he's going to show us those things that Jesus taught, the things that he saw Jesus do. But he's saying, no, 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 this is real. Don't doubt it. You, you don't need to be a questioning, right? And again, one of the most common phrases of this letter is John is going to say, so that you may know. He's also going to say, I am writing this because, right? He's not being ambiguous. This is clear truth. This is what I'm saying. This is why I'm saying it. Now, what are we supposed to do? Uh, by the way, he ends his, his opening uh, line here with concerning the word of life. In other words, all of this is about Christ, right? And then he's going to say, now, this is what you do in response to understanding who Jesus is. He's going to say, that life was made manifest, right? He's talking about Christ, now manifest in the flesh when he was on earth. He says, and we have seen it. And now this is what he's going to say. He said, this is how you respond to understanding who Jesus is. The first thing he's going to say you do is, is you're going to testify to it. You're going to share the story of it. This is the, the sharing of the gospel. And, and typically testifying, when we talk about testifying, it's like this very personal thing. I, and, and John's going to do a little bit of this, and he does a little bit of this. He's going to say, no, 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 this is, what, this is how Jesus changed me. Um, but by the way, can I tell you something? We believe in the gospel, not just because it's personal in nature, but also because, uh, and primarily because it's true in nature. And the power of great testimony is not like, it's not just, this is what Jesus did to me. That is powerful. This is how Jesus changed me, right? But, but it's powerful because it's also true. It's true. This is who Jesus is. And so he says, I'm going to testify to it. I'm going to share the story of how Jesus has changed me. And friend, when you encounter and engage in the real Christ, there's a testimony that comes up in you because you remember how he brought you from death to life, how, he, uh, how you experienced redemption, and how you live in the freedom of knowing who Christ is. And you testify to it. It reminds me of a story in the Old Testament. Uh, in the Old Testament, there's this a story, and the Israelite people, they're under siege from an opposing army, and the opposing army is on the outside of town, and the Israelites, uh, the city, they're, they're enclosed in their city, and uh, their uh, provisions are wasting away, and they're getting to a very desperate state, and they're living in absolute fear of the enemy on the outside. Well, at some point in time, some of the people in the city, they, uh, they're outside of the city now, and they find themselves in the midst of the enemy camp, and they discover something in the enemy camp, and that is that the, uh, the enemy that is uh, right now striking fear in the hearts of everyone living in the city, the enemy, God had confused them, and they had already been routed and defeated, but even though the enemy in the camp had been routed and defeated, and the victory had already been won by the Lord, the people inside of the city were still cowering in fear to an enemy that they did not know was defeated. And so then when these guys, these Israelites, when they arrive themselves in the camp, they see that all of the provision and all of the blessing and all of the goodness uh, that they need, like practically to survive, it's all right there. And one of them, I'm paraphrasing, one of them says, oh man, let's enjoy this. Let's party, right? But then another one says, no, 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 it is not good for us to keep this to ourselves, not even for a night. We must go back to the city and tell them that the enemy is gone and the victory has been won and the provisions are right there. What's he? He says, we got to go tell him this good news. Friend, what's the metaphor here? Oh, it's a beautiful picture of the gospel because right now we have a world that is sitting under the siege of the enemy, thinking that the enemy is out there stealing all of the good and all of that which is supposed to be the good life that Christ has for us. And we have to remind the world that the enemy has already been defeated. The victory has already been won, right? And that we are the followers of Christ and we cannot keep it to ourselves. We need to run back into the city and say the power of that sin, any sin and every sin has already been defeated by Christ on the cross and his resurrection. The provision is there. Get it. That's our message, right? It's a message of good news. It's a message of good news. So we testified to it. He says, next then we proclaim it. We proclaim eternal life. Uh, and the idea of proclamation, we proclaim the goodness of the gospel. We proclaim it through gospel preaching. We proclaim it through individual evangelism. We proclaim it uh, by inviting people into church. We proclaim it by planting churches. We proclaim it by being about the work of the gospel going out to the world. 
We proclaim it, and we won't be quiet about it. We've got the good news. He says, we've seen it. We testify to it. We proclaim it. Uh, and then he says, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. In other words, we're proclaiming the story of Christ, that which we have seen and heard. We proclaim also to you, right, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. What's he saying there? He's saying we're going sh- to profess it or proclaim it to you. To you. Who is the you there? The you are to those who are not in fellowship with the Father anymore. We're going to proclaim to you, those who have not embraced Christ. Notice that the the close followers of Christ, the ones who can say, no, I saw him, I heard him, I can testify to him, I was there, I personally experienced him. They're the writers in the scriptures, right, who show the two camps, that there are the lost and the found. There are the ones who are in and out. There are the, the ones who have embraced Christ and the ones who have not. And he says, we're going to go share the message of the gospel with those people who are not yet in fellowship. And we're going to profess this message of Christ to them. Now, this is so important when we live in a world that says, okay, you have your truth and I have my truth. The other day, somebody in an argument was trying to present the, the, the case of like, well, how would you want somebody of a different faith to present their truth to you? I said, well, first off, it wouldn't matter how they presented their truth and how I presented my truth because my truth is the only one that's actually true. They're not presenting truth. That's the difference. That's the difference. Anyone of any other faith who is presenting something is presenting a lie. We are the only ones who can actually present a truth. And by, my, uh, by the way, friend, it's not that we should not be, obviously, we should be kind and loving and, and how we talk matters. But in the end, it is not a person who saves another person. It is the power of the gospel that saves another person. Okay. And so you'll hear this all the time. People will say this. It's a, I, I am not excusing bad behavior in any way whatsoever. But people will always say, well, if Christians were just nicer, people would get saved. How nice somebody is doesn't change whether or not the gospel renews and wakes up that person's heart. Do not diminish God's power so much that your level of niceness affects somebody else's salvation. You are not that important. Okay? Sorry. Not sorry. Hashtag. I did that reverse. Let's keep going. Not an excuse to be mean. Not an excuse to be mean. Of course not. Of course not. (laughs) Oh, the gospel is much more powerful than Stephen's quirky, messed up, weird personality. All right. Where was I? I was talking about something. I don't even know what I was talking about. I have no clue where I'm at. That doesn't happen very often. Oh, we're going to proclaim the gospel. Amen. All right. Well, I don't know where I'm at, so I'm just going to move on to my next point. So... Here's where that leaves us. We're going to testify. We're going to proclaim. We're going to bring forth the gospel. Now, I'm going to use that as a way of setup this morning into our theme for the summer. And, uh, and, and our title is this, Extra Evangelical. Now, uh, words, well, words are funny in 2023, are, are they not? And uh, the term, maybe again, you're like, I've never heard the term extra evangelical. We made it up, okay? And, and, and because you can make up whatever you want in 2023. It's great, right? So uh, we made it up, and, and then we also made up a definition. And so I'm going to give you that in a second. But to understand the term extra evangelical, uh, you're also going to need to understand two terms beforehand. And the first term we're going to need to understand is the term evangelical, okay, or evangelical. Evangelicalism, and I want to make sure I, I create a, a quick aside here. Evangel, evangelism and evangelicalism are not interchangeable terms. Evangelism is sharing your faith. Evangelicalism is a, uh, is a broad term defining uh, a certain set of beliefs. Okay, and I would say this, that as we understand evangelicalism, as it has been understood in the last 60 to 70 years, right, that evangelicalism uh, is a, 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 a continuation and a term to help us understand the continuation from the garden, right, through the Old Testament to the moment of Christ, to John writing his letter, on through the early church, through the medieval period, down through the rest Reformation, into the Great Awakening, into the church of today. This is what I'm suggesting. And that evangelicalism is a broad term, okay, of a statement and a system of belief that helps us carry forth the line. Now, 
Here is what the uh, idea of evangelicalism, okay, I want to give seven tenets, and you say, well, why didn't you pick 14, and why didn't you pick 12, and why didn't you pick all that kind of stuff? Okay, I probably could have, uh, but I picked seven uh, that, that evangelicals, again, through the line, have said now uh, that this is essential to understanding the Christian faith. I say this also saying this, that there is a point where diversion off of the line, all right, whereas we're talking about the straight line, there is a point where diversion off of the line, which we uh, call theological liberalism or progressivism, that kind of thing, that there comes a point where you are so far off the line that you cease to be Christ followers, okay? And you say, well, where is that line? Well, there's a couple of them that are very obvious, right? Uh, But I would say that throwing out these seven things would make somebody off of the line in such a way that they're no longer a follower of Christ. They're they're not practicing Christianity anymore. They're practicing a man-made religion. Okay. And by the way, the greatest research on this was actually written 100 years ago by a guy named um, Gresham Manchin. And uh, the book is called Christianity and Liberalism. And it was him 100 years ago uh, when the seminaries began to go uh, adrift. And, and he was like the holding the line of that which was orthodox doctrine. And so if you want to go straight to the source, um, obviously the scriptures first, but a helpful resource is, is his book, Christianity and Liberalism, written in 19, I think it was 1923, because this is 100 years. Might have been 1922. Let me give you these seven truths. Number one is this. The need for individual or the need for conversion. The need for conversion. 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Or as John wrote it in his gospel, ye must be born again. And uh, one of the phrases that has become interchangeable almost with evangelicalism is uh, born-again Christian. Are you a born-again Christian? Are you a born-again Christian, right? Uh, and, and, and people, then they got all fitted or all out of rage over the idea of being born again and all of that kind of stuff. I was like, well, Jesus used those words, okay? So if you want to get mad at anyone, get mad at Jesus. He is the one who said, ye must be born again. But one of the basic tenets here then of the straight line is the need for conversion, confession of sin, repentance, turning from that to this because you have been granted a new heart by the power of the gospel. Oh, and and what do we love about this gospel? Uh, That this gospel is a gracious gospel. Uh, It is the gospel uh, that that doesn't care what type of sin you are engaged in, right? It's a gospel that can break through uh, any sin, right? It's why around here we say everyone's invited to experience redemption. We don't care what you're caught up in. We don't care what your past is. Uh, What we care about is that you embrace the gospel and now walk in your new freedom, right? And so the, the, the need to be born again. Number two, a second truth was this, the need of Christ, substitutionary atonement or payment, right, uh, as the payment for our sins, uh, for our redemption. 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Later in this epistle, John is going to use the term propitiation, and it is the understanding that the straight line of the Christian faith has always understood the necessity of the blood sacrifice of Christ, because uh, on the cross, Christ satisfied the wrath of God, right? Uh, And it was poured out on Christ instead of poured out on us. And it was the blood of Christ. That's what the Passover was all about. It is the blood of Christ that cleanses us from sin. And so we reject anything. It's part why we took communion today. We reject anything that holds up Christ's death as just a cosmic example of love. No, we need the shed blood of Jesus. By the way, if you want to have like your heretic radar, radar going off, one of the first things uh, that, the, uh, that that heresy will do is it will begin to attack the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross. They'll say, oh, that's so barbaric. Oh, it's so this. Oh, it's so that. Oh, Christ's blood didn't actually. Nope, that's wrong. Nope, it's not right. We, we embrace this truth. Number three, the inspiration, inerrancy. These are fun words. The inspiration, inerrancy, infallibility, and authority of Scripture. Now, just in case you don't think that this is a relevant topic today, just go back and read my Facebook last week, Okay. Some of you know what you're talking about because we're Facebook friends. 
And I made uh, a comment on uh, the inspiration, inerrancy, infallibility, and authority of Scripture. And uh, you would have thought I was saying something controversial. Okay? Which, again, I always say this, believing the Bible ought not to be controversial in the faith. Okay? Um, But, sadly, it is. And this is why this is important. And it is all of these things. The inspiration, inerrancy, infallibility, and authority. 1 John 4, 6 says this. We are from God. Look how divisive, intolerant John's language is. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. It's not all the same. We don't have a unifaith. There's not a universalistic thing. He says there's uh, those who are from God and those who are not from God. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Let me say something controversial. There is right and wrong. There's truth and there is error. There is that which is right and there is that which is a lie. And when the modern theological liberal says, well, by what merit do you uh, assert these truths? By the merit of 2,000 years of orthodox doctrine straight from the apostles. By that merit. And I don't care if you've taken a couple Greek classes. Most heretics have. Okay? Look at what he says. Whoever knows God listens to us. Oh, John, how dare you make such a patriarchal statement? No, because John knew something. If you let the diversions win the day, eventually you will have a completely different line. And on this line, it only leads to one place, hell. That's it. That's where the line leads. If you're on the other, if you're not on the right line. And John knew that well enough. He knew that well enough to, uh, to say, whoever knows God will listen to us. Will listen to the word of God. Whoever is not from God will not listen to us. Let me, okay. Did not say this last sermon, but let me say it this time. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. How do you know if someone is not truly a Christ follower? They do not listen to the word of God. You can reverse engineer this. I don't care what you profess. I don't care where you work. I don't care what you say. If you do not listen to the word of God, you are not of Christ. Okay. Let me give brief definitions to these things real quick. The inspiration, what does that mean? That we believe that all of the word of God is breathed out by God himself. Amen. Inerrancy, okay? And I say this, uh, inerrancy is the gateway drug to heresy. Okay? Inerrancy is the gateway drug to heresy. Here's why. Because people will say, well, we don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. Uh, Because in all of the manuscripts, what happened is uh, they were changed, and they were changed, and they were changed, and that's hogwash. Okay? There are little minor discrepancies in the early manuscripts, but we have more reason to believe in the uh, authenticity of the um, scriptural manuscripts than any book in the history of the world. Okay? Anyone. And, uh, and what people will do is they'll use the idea of inerrancy and, and they'll, they'll try to poke holes in these minor grammatical things in the early manuscripts and they'll use that as a gateway and to say, well, if we can't trust the manuscripts in that way, then we can't trust them in this way. And then all of a sudden we have nothing to stand on. So your first warning, again, your heresy radar, if somebody argues against the inerrancy of scripture, right, then what they're doing is they're allowing for there to be error in the word of God. Okay? Infallibility, then, what does that mean? Uh, well, it, it's, it's similar to inerrancy, but in essence, it's kind of saying that the, 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 the Word of God can't fail. It can't be wrong because it is the inspired Word of God. Now, if the Bible is inspired and if the Bible is inerrant and the Bible is infallible, then the Bible also has authority. And what we mean by the authority of God is this, that the Bible, the Word of God, has all of the authority for life and conduct for the believer. And so when a modern uh, Christian says, well, who are you to say that that is right or wrong? What is often going on there is what they don't want is the word of God to be their authority. 
They, they want to create an out to be able to um, participate or do whatever they want to do. And this is why you have to hold on to inspiration, inerrancy, and infallibility because it holds on then to authority. And this is the fight of our day. It is the fight of our day, friends. Number five. Number four. The need to live a holy life. 1 John 2, 3. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Now, you guys are smart. Follow the line. If you poke holes in inerrancy, infallibility, and inspiration, then when you arrive at number four to live a holy life, you can go, well, we can't be certain the Bible was saying that. So I'm living a holy life. Well, you're not living a holy life as it has been understood for 2,000 years. You're living a holy life based on the diversions, and you're trying to make yourself feel comfortable in sin. Okay? And so this is why we hold on to that. But then what comes out of that is a life of holiness. A life of holiness. Holiness is not a creation of fundamentalists. Holiness is from the Word of God that I then submit myself in the full authority of Scripture to how I am supposed to live. Number five, the role of Christians in winning other people to Christ. I already shared these verses in the opening segment. That's kind of how John starts his letter. Uh, but the, 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 the straight line is what? That we are active about winning people to Christ. Uh, again, through evangelism, through all of these different things, uh, that this is a belief that we hold to. And you can see the counter of this in modern day, right? Well, it's kind of offensive to share our faith with somebody. Who, who's to say that they're wrong? No, no, no. We want to win the soul. Ye must be born again to hold on to that. Number six, uh, the role of Christians in creating a godly society. First John three eighteen says this, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. In other words, go do something about it. Believe in your gospel so much that it changes the way that you live uh, and that, uh, that a society then will reflect the goodness of the word of God, okay? Uh, this is not weird doctrine or theology. This simply says that as a Christ follower, I'm going to operate as a Christ follower in everything that I do. And as I operate more as a Christ follower, right, then the world will reflect the gospel more and the kingdom of God more. That's it. And that there is a belief in that. Now, this was a strong belief of evangelicalism, uh, but then in the late 90s and the early 2000s, what happened is new leaders emerged in the evangelical church, particularly in America, and what they did is they started saying, no, the previous generations of evangelicalism were wrong. They were wrong. They were wrong. And we're going to divert from that. And what they did mostly uh, early on, they're doing the rest of them now, right? Because you never just progress a little bit. Progress always wants to be more progressive, right? And so you never give in a little bit. That's why it's so important that you hold the line, right? They started with this one. This is the one. They said, no, no, no. We have to, uh, we have to stop being all of that type of gospel engagement with the world. We have to circle up. It's just about the church. It's just about number one conversion. And we're going to circle in. We're going to circle in. We're going to circle in. But as the leaders of the evangelical church did that in the late 90s and the early 2000s and then began to train other Christians in that. And by the way, the three most prominent leaders of the evangelical church in many circles um, in the late 90s and the early 2000s have all fallen off the theological deep end. Why? Because this is what happens when you start down the line. And then they trained all of the other pastors, which is why we're where we're at today. And it was this one that went first. No, 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 no. The church just needs to stay in its lane. Yeah, the church does need to stay in its lane. And you know what its lane is? Everything. 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 I can't remember the C.S. Lewis quote right now, but uh, he has a quote that just talks about how, how the Lord, right, just claims every part, everything. That's our line. Number seven, Christ is the only path to salvation and heaven and hell as real destinations. First John 2, 25. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. Eternal life. That there is heaven and hell. And I would suggest this, that most of why um, uh, people who have diverted from the line or are comfortable diverting from the line is because they don't actually hold a firm belief that there's a heaven and a hell. 
And so it's easier if you, uh, and we can even watch the rise of heresy in our own day, and a lot of it also started with this one. Let's erase hell. Let's get rid of hell um, because then we can downplay the significance of everything else, okay? Now, these seven tenets, these seven statements have been the line, John says, from the beginning, right? Back to when Jesus was on the earth, right? From the beginning, all the way back to uh, creation. It's been the line forever. And the church is the pillar and the buttress of the truth to hold the line. Now, okay, that's evangelicalism. Now, let me give you two terms, two terms, okay, that help us understand. Again, I'm trying to arrive at why our, uh, our, our, our series is named what it is. Let me give you another term. Okay, by show of hands, by the way, after I say this term, raise your hand if outside of me saying it in the last two weeks, you have heard this term. I'm just curious, okay? Uh, the term is exvangelical, right? Just real quick, raise your Okay, so yeah, small term. Let me ask, uh, there's a word that I wouldn't say is the exact same word, but it's similar to it. It's the word deconstructionism. Uh, raise your hand if you've heard that word. Okay, yep, so that one's gotten a little bit more common uh, than exvangelicalism, uh, but I would say, that, again, they're not completely interchangeable, but they're very similar and they're very close. Let me give you a definition uh, of exvangelical, uh, right, from um, the great source of human truth, Wikipedia. Okay. Here's the definition. Exvangelical is a social movement of people who have left evangelicalism, especially white evangelical churches in the United States, and they have left it for atheism, agnosticism, progressive Christianity, or any other religious belief or lack thereof. That's Exvangelicalism. And what they're saying is, I'm abandoning that. And what I am suggesting this morning is that uh, the true exvangelicals and the true deconstructionists, okay, not just somebody who's saying, well, yeah, there's some things in the modern church that I don't love, right? Not that, but the people who are, who are, who are aligning with us, what I'm saying this morning is they're not just abandoning evangelicalism, white American Christianity, and evangelicalism, by the way, is way bigger than just white American Christianity. They're not just abandoning that. They're abandoning the faith itself. The, the expans and the deconstructionists, that the diversion of the line has gotten to a place where it has ceased to be Christianity. Let me give you a different definition of uh, exvangelical, by the way. Exvangelical is a social movement of people who were rooted in the Christian faith, who have since decided that the Bible isn't true, Jesus' death wasn't necessary, sexual sin isn't sin, and Marxism is godliness. Okay? Gloves off. That's exvangelicalism. That's deconstructionism. And that is the people who are claiming these things, professing these things. This is where they're leading people, and the fruit of their actions indicate that to be true. It is not a cute term. It is a term of modern heresy leading people astray, and it has to be dealt with. So, here at Redemption, we were sitting around, and we were talking about our series, and we, I had the whole staff in a, in a meeting, and we read through all of 1 John. And so we just read it out loud, no commentary, let's just read it. And we got the end, we said, what were the things that stuck out, and these certain phrases, and that kind of stuff. They said, okay, now we need a title, uh, so we don't just call it 1 John. They said, let's come up with a title. And I think it was Danae, and she's like, well, man, as I think about us, we're not just like evangelical, we're like extra Evangelical, And then I think it got tightened down to, we are extra-evangelical. Now, because it's 2023 and we can make up whatever we want, let me give you a definition of extra-evangelical, okay? I'm going to get a t-shirt that says extra-evangelical on it. And here's what an extra-evangelical is. A person unwaveringly committed to historical biblical doctrines unafraid and unaffected by a shifting culture and committed to partnering with the local church to build God's kingdom through both personal conversions and the formation of a godly society. That's an extra evangelical. <laughs> Special credit to Jeff for changing the word Christian doctrines into biblical doctrines. Good work. Now, here, 
is where we, oh, by the way, I have a secondary definition just in case you want to shorten it. Second definition is this, not a wimp. That's the second definition. A person unwaveringly committed. There is no room for discussion around heresy. We don't entertain it. A person unwavering, I'm not saying you can't talk to a heretic. I'm just saying, like, I'm not going to entertain your thought. I'm not going to entertain your perspective. When your perspective is wrong, I don't care to entertain it. Okay, because I know where that slope means. It doesn't mean you don't engage, right, in conversation or whatever that. I'm just saying don't let it entertain in your mind. It's not true. A person unwaveringly committed to historical biblical doctrines, the line, okay, who is unafraid and unaffected by a shifting culture. I think both of those things are true. One, we have to be unafraid right? We can't be afraid of what people are going to say. We can't be afraid of people throwing out the statement, that's not the loving thing to do. We addressed that a couple of months ago. When the opposite of hate is not tolerance and embrace anything. The opposite of hate is love that is built on rational, logical truth. That's the opposite of hate, okay? And so the phrase, that's not the loving thing to do, and so therefore embrace and accept anything, that's not a biblical idea, okay? So we have to be unafraid. We also have to be unaffected. We can't let culture beat us down. And I know it's coming at you from every single A angle, okay? It's coming at you from the store. It's coming at you from social media. It's coming at you from the legacy media. It's coming at you from uh, uh, the government. It's coming after you from your woke corporation. It's coming after you from your kid's school. It's coming after you from every single possible angle. It wants to beat you down. It wants you to step off the path. It wants you to walk the other way. And you have to remain unaffected by it, Okay? And then committed to partnering with the local church. Here's why. Because the expands and the deconstructionists, they, they, they hate the church. They hate the church. And there's a, there's a there, and here's the deal. I am not negating legitimate church hurt. Of course, there is legitimate church hurt. But the phrase church hurt is now being thrown around with the same woke ideology underneath it as things of the world. It's anti-authoritarian, uh, proper authority, okay? It, it, it's anti the word of God, and we will use the idea of church hurt uh, sometimes. Again, I'm not negating legitimate church hurt, and where there was legitimate church hurt, let's understand that. It's not because the church was acting like the church. It's because the church wasn't acting like the church. So you don't throw the church out because people are sinful, Okay? And we can't fall into the same logic. Well, oh man, that church hurt me. They told me I was sinning. No, that didn't, church didn't hurt you. That church loved you, okay? And there's a right way and a biblical, there's a biblical way and a non-biblical way to do it, okay? But we can't just embrace this idea that, that anything of the church standing for truth, oh, the church hurt me. Well, if the church was telling you that which was true in a biblical way, they didn't hurt you. They loved you, okay? Okay, so committed to partnering with the local church to both personal conversion and the formation of a godly society. That's what we mean by extra-evangelical. Here's what we mean by the series, extra-evangelical, right? It means that we are going to um, evangelical, we are going to evangelical, we are going to be about these tenets, extra, extra, extra. Because we need a church and we need a people and we need a world right now, right, uh, that, is, that is clear on who we are. And so we're extra evangelical. And let me just tell you how that's going to look. I'll review the seven tenets that I went through earlier. It's going to look like this, that we believe that every person must submit their heart to Christ and experience salvation and be born again by the gospel. It means we have to preach sin, you have to preach repentance, you have to preach conversion, you have to preach being born again, and you have to proclaim the gospel so that people can hear it and call people to repentance. Extra, extra. Number two, that Christ absolutely had to die as the payment for our sins and that turns up as uh, substitutionary atonement, propitiation, and redemption. They are necessary to understanding our faith and to securing our salvation. Christ had to die, and he did, and he died for us, and he paid for our sins. 
Number three, that the Bible is 100% inspired, inerrant in its proper understanding of that term, infallible, and it is the authority of all life and conduct for the believer. And so we will fit under the authority of the word of God. It, not culture, it, not a book pastor, it, not a blog, will tell us what is right and what is wrong. Number four, that Christians are called to live lives of holiness, holiness, and that the word of God gets to tell us what is holy and what is right and what sin is sin and, uh, and, uh, and what the scripture said and what the straight line has said is sin for 2,000 years, we will call sin. Number six, number five, that Christians have a mandate to share their faith, invite people uh, into the body of believers, and support initiatives that spread the gospel. And so we will be extra in our efforts to reach the lost. We will be extra in our efforts to, uh, to be a part of and come uh, alongside plant, church plans. We will be extra in our proclamation of the gospel because we have to bring this gospel to the world. We will not be the person who looked out at the good news of the provision and said, wow, look what I get to enjoy. We will be the person who said, no, let us go back into the city and let us bring the hope of redemption to those people. Number six, that Christians and that we will be extra evangelical. We will represent Christ in every worldly sphere. And this includes all things because all things must submit to the Godhead of Christ. We want all things submitted to Christ. Uh, and so we will be extra in our engagement of bringing the gospel to the world. And I know for many of you, we've talked about this already. This means you bringing the gospel into the world that you're in, whatever it might be. But we will also be extra in our defense, in our engagement, in bringing the gospel into our world. I've already shared with you one way that we're going to do that. I'm excited because we're seeing traction on this already. Some of you have already come up and talked to me. Uh, I've shared already, and I'm going to share again and again and again uh, that this August and this November, we have a chance to defend and protect the soul of our state. And this is not even being talked about yet, so we have a chance to go on offense. I was with a group of 20 pastors on Thursday. Uh, they did the whole presentation. Uh, everyone was quiet. I had already heard the presentation once, so the speaker kind of looked at me. He said, hey, can you say what you said at the last time you were in this meeting? And I said, yes, we have the opportunity, church, to go on offense against the pit of hell, and we're going to do it. And here's what I'm talking about. Uh, in August, we have a chance uh, to protect life and to protect parental rights um, by voting yes. And then we have a chance in November, right, to stand up as a church and to vote no on what's going to happen in November. No in November is a constitutional amendment which will undeniably strip parents of their rights to raise their children. Okay? This is not hyperbole. This is what is happening in other states. And this is exactly what demonic institutions like the ACLU and Planned Parenthood want to stop the church from doing anything. And they will spend tens of millions of dollars lying to you and stripping you of your rights, which has already happened in states across our country. And we, and I am sounding the alarm, I have three other meetings this week. We will, right here in Monclova, raise the alarm that this will not happen in our state. We will not lose this fight. Here's the good news. There's going to be a 6% voter turnout in September or in August that will decide the fate of our rights and the fate of the unborn. 6% of registered voters. Guess what? If the church rises up, we will double that and we will clobber this and send it back to hell. Okay? And over the next few months, I'm telling you, the outside, okay, they're going to spend tens of millions of dollars lying to you. This is why I'm talking about it often and early. Okay? Because we will not be bought into the lies. Number seven, Jesus is the only way to salvation. Those who embrace him will spend eternity in heaven. And those who do not will spend eternity in hell. Friends, we end here because it reminds us of what's at stake. We are extra evangelical. We are going to bring the gospel to a world that needs it. We know what's at stake. And we know that we, the church, are called to bring the hope of Christ, the only hope for salvation to the world. And so we're going to be extra, extra.